Hi everyone, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Lola. And welcome to episode one of the NUS Women's Campaign podcast. WomCam is a brand new podcast born out of the love, sweat and tears of none other than your NUS, that's the National Union of Students, National Women's Campaign. Uh, we are one of five politically autonomous liberation campaigns at NUS and we're led and governed by women students in further and higher education across the country. So we work to represent women students around the country, extend and defend their rights in all sorts of forms and yeah, I guess do good work in lots of different ways. Uh, who are we open to, Lola? Well, <laughs> the Women's Campaign is open to all who self-define as women, including, if they wish, non-binary students and those with complex gender identities, which include women. Um, we're obviously trans-inclusive and we engage critically with the scholarship of trans feminists um, and, yeah, celebrate uh, trans people. Lovely. We're very, we're the cosiest campaign, as I've written in this episode <laughs> script. Um, so yeah, so that's what you're listening to right now. Um, this hopefully will be a place for us to catch up with both each other, um, our committee and you all. Um, and yeah, we want to use these, this space for many reasons. So talking through some topical feminist issues, a bit of political education, signposting you to some resources, feminist work, events and actions that you can support, as well as highlighting the ongoing work of the women's campaign as well. Um, yeah, so hopefully all of our conversations can flow from there yeah exactly okay so seeing as it's the very first episode uh we should share a bit about ourselves first so my name's sarah lasoye i'm your national women's officer um black feminist troublemaker i'm a scorpio son <laughs> obviously uh how else would i have gotten to this position um sagittarius moon and virgo rising very important um i came into the women's campaign through my work as an organizer in my university so i went to st george's university in southwest london did biomedical science um, and then over my three course, three years of my course did uh, a lot of organizing. So I founded the Feminist Society and then co-founded an anti-harassment campaign and then introduced compulsory consent workshops for incoming students and then did work around a lot of different issues from like BME attainment gap to like running events on trans experiences and stuff. So it was a very active time for me um, I'm very exhausted, but I'm still here. <laughs> um, and I'm Lola, I'm the NEC um, second place, which essentially means that I'm Sarah's deputy. Um, I was the Cambridge Women's um, Officer uh, last year, and I, I kind of was introduced to activism or at least student activism through my university's women's campaign. And I was a, um, an avid student activist working against um, the marketization of higher education, working on um, increasing support services for survivors, um, things like decolonizing the curriculum. Uh, yeah, and so I think both of us do activism outside of university spaces as well, but I think university was a space that really introduced us to the kind of foundations mm. of our knowledge about activism. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was a very, um, I guess like, University is the place that you sort of become very politically aware, yeah. very suddenly for yeah. me. So I was very like, I don't know, very, I don't know, I wouldn't describe it in political terms, but like center left as an aesthetic, just like, <laughs> oh, left is nice. Everything's great in, theoretically. But then I was like, oh, this can have like material effects on people's lives. And then I was like, okay, I need to do yeah. something about it. I think also for me, like one of the greatest things about getting involved in student activism was the community mm. i think it especially in like an elite institution like cambridge mm. what student activism offered me was other people who were interested in the same things that 
what I was interested in, who understood that material conditions have actually, you know, affect people's lives in meaningful ways, and who were compelled to organise because the conditions of the university were just like untenable. There yes. were so many things, racism, sexism, that we couldn't allow to just carry on. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, and, and through that we formed such lovely friendships and um really lovely relationships mm. that i know extend far beyond like being at university together yeah i was about to say that like that's a really crucial point those communities that we build through organizing because not just for ourselves but also for the people around us and i think with uk higher education especially when you see on twitter that someone at cambridge has started up like a really cool like when i saw that fly was kicking mm. off at cambridge that really told me like oh okay i can do like black feminist organizing in my <laughs> uni my tiny five thousand student healthcare uni yeah. i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it. who's gonna stop me um yeah so we'll get into it this first episode seeing as it's october hopefully when this comes out still um fingers crossed <laughs> um it's black history month and I wanted the first episode to specifically focus on black British feminist organizers for many reasons, because as we know, like black feminist figures are the ones we hear most frequently are predominantly based in the US. So we know the Angela Davises, we know the Bell Hooks, we know the Audrey Lords, um, we know the Kimberly Crenshaws. Um, but I think we don't know enough about many, many black British feminist organizers who have contributed to the landscape that we're now building off of and working from um, and a legacy that we're definitely in. We're very, very thankful for. So I think I wanted to use this episode, this first episode to delve into um, the specific histories of a few black women organizers um, here on our own soil and just talk a bit about the fact that we don't think of them immediately when we think of feminist organizers in terms of mainstream feminist dialogue mm -hmm. and why that might be. Um, this erasure that we see um, black, specifically black feminists across the board face, um, why might that be? And also why might there be just this very much push towards one heightened, centralized, memorialized figure of black feminism. So like Angela Davis, like that's it. That's and that's it, exactly, yeah. Um, and how that can be like very harmful in a way in terms of like going back to movement building, sort of stripping away like that push towards recognizing feminist organizing in our own communities. I think also what that erasure does or what not having a, a good sense of your own feminist history um, in the in the context you exist in does is makes feminist organizing so elsewhere basically mm. it's like oh that was happening somewhere else exactly. people were organizing somewhere else and it's like no people organize here mm. against um the state like against all of uh, the ways in which people were being oppressed um and specifically like women um organized within as as a kind of subsection of a lot of um organizing groups because they realized that their issues weren't being addressed and mm. specifically black women organized in that way formed those communities and formed alternative ways to provide each other with care yeah. education healthcare, all of these really the things that are a necessity yeah. in like surviving and not only surviving but having mm -hmm. a good and meaningful um and full like life yeah basically. absolutely so yeah, so we're going to start off talking about two specific people and from there sort of just delve into our own conversation about all of the things we've briefly touched on and more. The two names that might come straight to the mind of anyone who's done a bit of digging around black feminists in the UK already um, are Olive Morris and Stella Dadzi. 
but it's very likely that you don't know who these people are because outside of you know academic circles who study and mm. try to archive black british feminist organizing it's difficult it's difficult to know who they are because they're not widely um remembered um but yeah so i'm going to talk a bit about olive morris and then lola's going to delve into a bit about stella Dazzi, and then we'll we'll see how we go so olive morris just a bit about her life in general um she was born in 1952 in jamaica and was the daughter of uh, vincent nathaniel morris and doris mosley she was nine years old when she and her brother um, left her maternal grandmother and joined her mother and father in South London, specifically Lavender Hill. When she was based in South London, she is sort of memorialized as being um, a very, very visible figure of black feminist organizing at the time. Um, she was a founding member of black, uh, Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, at, at the time, many black political organizations were based in and around Brixton, which was an important area for counterculture political activity. Um, she traveled around, uh, she visited, she planned to visit actually like in 1972, the American Black Panther leader, Eldred Cleaver, um, who was in exile in Algeria, but that didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, in her work based in the UK, um, she's, well known for having squatted in Brixton and this squat becoming an organizing center for community groups like, uh, such as uh, black people against state harassment as well as um, housing Sabah bookshop as well, uh, which was the first black community bookshop, was one of the first black community bookshops at the time. Um, in 1974, actually, uh, Morris returned to Jamaica for six weeks. Um, after that, she did a degree in economics and social science at Manchester University. And while she was there, she was a member of the National Coordinating Committee of Overseas Students. So like reaching towards, I guess, international students organizing that we see now in our movement. Um, her work included campaigning for the abolition of fees for overseas students. Uh, off campus as well, she was involved in the work of Manchester Black Women's Cooperative and Black Women's Mutual Aid Group. Uh, yeah, so she was involved in a, a lot of different anti-imperial struggles, which I won't get specifically into, but is very well known for. Um, and you should definitely get into the history of her work before um, she co-founded what is seen as a really, really, I don't know what how to do, how would you describe this group? Like, what's the word? Kind of central to like practical organizing. Yeah. In the like 70s and 80s. Yeah. So like, so she co-founded um, OAD, so the Organization of Women and of African and Asian Descent um, in 1978 with Stella Dadzi, who Lola's gonna speak about in a bit and many other women. Um, and that group in and, of, in and of itself is sort of like very, I don't know, yeah, central to mm. how we, we frame black feminist and feminist organizing in the UK from then onwards um, and their work very much focused on um, the importance of anti-colonial and anti-imperialist um, struggle, like combating those struggles, uh, fighting those struggles, I should say, um, as part of a feminist work mm -hmm. um, and looking at issues like, I guess, housing and mm -hmm. reproductive rights Justice. and you yeah. know, all of these different things as part of, um, absolutely, yeah. So that's a bit about Olive Morris. Yeah. Um, did you want to touch on Stella Dazzi before we get into discussion? Yeah. Um, so, so Stella Dazzi um, is a British educationalist, activist, writer, and historian. Um, as kind of Sarah said, she's best known um, for co-founding OAD, 
um, and co-authoring a book called The Heart of Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, um, with Suzanne Scaife and Beverly Bryan. And I'd really encourage anybody who wants to know about OWAD and wants to know about the kind of organising that was happening in that period to read that book, because it is a very comprehensive um, overview of the ways in which OAD came into being and why it came into being. Um, it's an overview of the kind of campaigns that they run and something that was central to OAD was the fact that it was an umbrella group. So it was mm. this kind of banner under which so many individual uh, groups with specific aims um, and specific using specific methods um, organized under yeah um, and so that obviously threw up its own uh, its own separate set of conflicts it threw up its own separate um set of problems mm. um that also had to be addressed within the organizing space and i've had the pleasure of meeting um interviewing yeah and interviewing her and getting to talk to her a bit about those what those conflicts were and how they arose and for me one of the best things that i took away um from my experience talking to her was that there was an understanding in OAD that nothing that was done um, within that space was done in isolation. Everything was internationalist in its um, framework, in its intention. Mm. So they were looking beyond their lives situated in, in um, Britain. And they were looking at how their experiences or their oppression is also linked to oppression of women in Africa and mm. how um, their the solidarity that they could show through anti-colonial struggles basically could help them forge um, really meaningful links um, and and think about the kind of resources that they could share and also the resources that could be given to them from other feminists working in um, the global south and in countries in Africa. Yeah. Um, and Olive, um, sorry, Stella Dazzi also talked a lot about how everyone around the time was a Marxist. Like every, <laughs> <laughs> socialism and Marxism were embedded into their practice. Yeah. They understood class as um, not only constitutive of their um, identities, but also the, the basis on which everything they did um, kind of rested upon. They, they realized that obviously class is racialized, gender is racialized, mm. gender is class, class is gender. <laughs> all of these, all of these um, you know, incredible, um, overlapping yeah and so everything that they <clears throat> did was about reordering or redistributing um resources from the state to the most marginalized mm. communities yeah um and also opposing the state um and caught not even um opposing the state and also drawing attention to the fact that black women were being ignored in healthcare. They were being ignored in education. They weren't yeah. receiving the kinds of education that they should have received yeah. um, in schools. And that's, I think, another thing that I think is really interesting about this whole project is the alternative modes of education. So mm. I did English literature as a student and I did lots of work around decolonizing the curriculum and thinking about knowledge production. And one of the greatest things I think to come out of this were the alternative routes of education that were established via bookshops, via community centers that enabled people to go and listen to their history and yeah. to learn about their history and to learn about colonialism, mm. which is what wasn't happening um, in the more kind of mainstream spaces. For sure, yeah. Um, it's interesting that from Heart of the Race, um, Stella Dadzi has a quote here, which I'll just read. Um, 
she says, we're not feminists. We reject that label because we feel that it represents a white ideology. In our culture, the term is associated with an ideology and practice which is anti-men. Our group is not anti-men at all. We're working towards, we're working together by different routes. We want to show people sisterhood in operation, something that's, for, that's a forward movement, not a divisive one. We take our responsibility to the community very seriously. I just might, what do you think about this quote? I, so I spoke to her actually at, at, about um, this when I got to interview her and she spoke a lot about um, when OAD was coming together or when black women organizers were coming together and realizing that no space adequately or critically addressed their lives or the, their struggle. Mm. When they were founding this space, they were thinking specifically about the ways in which in the, the 70s um, and 80s, the mainstream kind of white feminist movement were uh, using anti, and anti-men, I say this with quotation marks, yeah. um, rhetoric a lot. It, yeah. it was being kind of weaponized. It was yeah. um, in, a, in an attempt to kind of, uh, talk about women's liberation. Mm. A lot, a lot of that energy went to uh, critiquing m individual men instead of you know structures. Of yeah, oppression, absolutely. Yeah, and she she spoke like quite beautifully about how that was a complicated thing for black feminists at the time because they understood their own commitments and their um, their sense of I don't want to say duty. That there was a care there for their communities mm. and those communities included black men those communities exactly. included yeah. their dads their brothers all of these people who were facing police brutality who were being you know racialized mm. in these very violent and dangerous ways mm. and so for them it wasn't as easy as saying you know i don't want to swear but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't you, you get the yeah, idea yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. as easy as saying that but that that also meant that she also said but we weren't going to not point out sexism and yeah. misogyny yeah. and the ways that it manifested in our organizing and in our lives mm. and that manifestation was a complete kind of silence mm. on the ways in which you know um black black radicalism or the ways in which like black liberation kind of completely ignored yeah. gender at the time. Yeah. And, and there was a sense of like one issue at a time as if transformation happens in <laughs> stages and not, you know, yeah. um, in a chaotic exactly. like, way. Yeah. And so when I read this, I don't, I don't, I think what they're saying or my interpretation of this mm. is, is not, you know, we reject feminist ideology. Yeah. We, we stand against what we saw as unhelpful feminist practice yeah. at the time. Absolutely. But there's there's no way that you can make the argument that the work that these women were doing was not feminist work. Of course it was feminist exactly. work. Um, it was, and, and for me, it was the, the kinds of feminist work that should be held up high. It was yeah. critical. It was engaging with communities. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was the kind of feminist work that we all should be aspiring to do, I think. Yeah, for sure. And obviously in in the birth of OAD as an organization, this in and of itself is foundational to that. So the recognition um, that we said, I think Girl and Bean like attended a, a, a national women's conference a few a year or so before the foundation of um, OAD, Girl and Bean also being a founding member of OAD as well. Um, and her experience there was that essential erasure of the, the nuanced experience of race and sexism and how they interact. Um, and going from like black organizing spaces, these women also had experiences 
just before they founded OAD of not necessarily feeling like, you know, women's issues were on the table. It felt like a second, like an afterthought to the main issues of, you know, that were at the time, which, you know, not to be negated, but also didn't, the, the practice at the time, like you said, didn't seem to have the capacity to include the nuance that would be speaking to their existence. Mm -hmm. So it sort of necessitated that they made a space where they could organize in a way that accommodated for them. Um, so now we're gonna talk about these questions. So I have a few that I will just say, and then we can get into a bit of a discussion about. Um, so yeah, what what does a good organizing space look like? Slash, 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 slash. Um, what makes these spaces necessary for us now? The million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> we were milling over. Before. Yeah. What makes a good organising space? I think, um, for me, and in my personal experience of organising, something that's crucial to any good organising space is self-reflexivity, the ability to be able to reflect on your organising practice in order to improve it. Yeah. And I feel like so many spaces lack that. Mm -hmm. They lack a kind of um, a place where people can come together and say, okay, what did we do well? What, what worked well? What have we learned from this action that we did, this march, this protest? Um, how are we doing on recruitment? How are we doing on involving new members in the group? Yeah. How are we doing on making sure that there's a, um, a democratic way in which we hear the voices and concerns of everybody involved? Yeah. Um, I think a good organizing space is one where um, comrades and, and people who are in it um, are attentive to the individual and specific needs of each other. Absolutely. And, um, that doesn't require a kind of um, um, a commitment that like, burns you out mm. or, or a commitment that um, that drives you so far into the ground that you're unable to give um, anything of worth or anything of value yeah. to the organising space. Um, I think a, a, a good organising space is one that includes joy <laughs> and laughing and understanding that those are so few and far between exactly <laughs> understanding that you don't you don't just organize to win you yeah. don't just organize to achieve a goal yeah um you organize because the urgency of the situation demands it mm. and even if you don't win a mm. space that recognizes that your the work that you're doing is important and like you should carry on doing it for sure uh, even if you don't win i think it, it's so interesting um having uh, conversations recently about the ways in which um, men and uh, women and women aligned people like conceptualize struggle. Mm -hmm. I think women and women aligned people are so much better at long term planning and mm, the sustainability yeah, of the movement. Yeah, the yeah. sustainability of the movement. They keep it alive. They yeah. pump the blood into it, in my opinion. Mm. And uh, whereas like men are, are much more focused on the end goal. And if you don't, you know, win, then what's the point? Like, mm. we, I, I often in the like in, in some spaces have heard um this idea of like well we we weren't successful we we didn't you know do what we wanted yeah. to do and it's like okay yeah. yes and we can reflect on the reasons why that is but yeah. that doesn't mean that all of the planning all right. of the organization that went into that action or that specific um thing that we did isn't worthwhile for sure or like that that doesn't mean that we can't take something um from what you know we've done and archive it and mm. you know memorialize it and make sure that the people who will take over from us understand that same, you know, fundamental thing. Yeah, you've made like ama many amazing points there. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think the the point on on 
um, who is doing what kinds of work and what th kinds of work people are drawn to is really important because obviously we have to think about you know men in organizing spaces and women and women and women line people in organizing spaces um, but even along lines of race and even along lines of other different identities you see that the people who are willing to do the long-term work are the people who are less likely to be celebrated for doing that work and have and more likely to have that work erased so so often as of the time like i i'm really interested to see like a lot of people going into party politics a lot of people going into politics that has that sort of like you said actionable like tick box mm -hmm. we achieved we got the votes we won mm -hmm. being men being predominantly white people being and those people being a lot of the time in my opinion less inclined to do community organizing in the same way that people of multiple marginalized identities are um yeah and also the point that you made on um the attention that we pay to our own organizing space being as crucial as the attention we pay to the vision that we want to see is so important because so often of the time that's what sucks out the joy when no one's paying attention to <laughs> the fact that you know people are falling apart and you know our own space is terrible and and replicating some of the things that we we're trying to dismantle outside of outside of it um yeah it, it makes me think of the this quote by this philosopher Simone Weil where she says like attention is the rarest and most pure form of generosity and even our organizing space we I feel like sometimes people are giving well feel as though they're giving so much externally and the vision to the vision and not so much to the people in the room and when we have a space that isn't being generous to the people in the room who have come together for the same vision I think that the sustainability of the movement is is lost yeah exactly i yeah. think the the activist imagination in like taking what you're talking about vision like the activist imagination is so important in mm -hmm. that because it's like we organize because we we think of a kind of liberated future or, or we see possibilities to live in better and more humane ways ways yeah. that can make us happier and fuller and live um lives of joy basically and being able to imagine that being able to even if it's not immediately tangible mm. to you that i think provides not only the impetus for organizing but the impetus to for us to care about one mm. another because we all have to kind of get to that future we all have to um work together and work collectively exactly like, collective strength yeah. is a necessity in order to like um achieve any you know vision yeah. anything within our imagination um, yeah so it, I think it gives us it gives the space a drive and a purpose mm. um, that can often feel very lot like lost when you're in like a three-hour meeting with people shouting at each other about <laughs> like strategy and what to do and yeah. stuff like that yeah people not holding the line mm. and it's like why <laughs> are we <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so like on that point of of these spaces being made necessary for multiple reasons like that and and the kinds of spaces we want to see why do you think we are having so many discussions around representation at this moment in time so representation in terms of people who we uh, celebrate as our leaders of a movement people who we organize with so what sorts of representations we're having in spaces and whether or not that's being quote-unquote exclusive or not um and how I guess meaningful or effective those spaces can be um, with the emphasis that we put on on representation, with positive and you know potentially negative benefits. I think like representation within organising. I feel like you've raised like all of the the things that I would say about it in terms of its limits. It's like 
not seeing yourself like represented in a in a space whether it be like mainstream party politics or even in the organizing space you know initially when you're at a stage uh, a particular stage in your politics i think can be like very disheartening but mm. we have to also obviously contend with the fact that just because you see yourself represented in mainstream politics just because you see yourself represented in any institutional space doesn't mean that there's any critical work underpinning yeah, yeah that like there there shouldn't be this assumed solidarity this mm. assumed um camaraderie yeah um just on the basis of representation because Absolutely. you will get your heart broken yeah. many, <laughs> many a time yeah um but I, I like i don't want to um completely like negate the importance yeah, negate of those. the importance of because yeah. i think it, it, it you know acting as a bat signal acting yeah as a kind of like, yeah okay 100 we are exactly. here we're doing this like <laughs> yeah and i think yeah. especially for the most you know you know marginalized um communities being able it's not so much seeing people be successful or representation in particular institutions but having a sense that there are other people in the world mm. who have your very specific um set of uh, experiences material conditions identities whatever like who also exist yeah that can be life <laughs> altering yeah it really can yeah um and so for me it's it's more it matters more on an interpersonal level than yeah. it does on a kind of grand stage platform yeah. level Absolutely. i I'm, you have to be skeptical i think and we 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 talked about this skeptical of you know um people who don't understand the limits of mainstream party politics or um who aren't willing to think outside beyond very rigid organizational frame, yeah, yeah frame, like, organizational yeah. frameworks um for liberation because liberation doesn't come from the state it doesn't mm. come from any organized body it's yeah. chaotic in its nature like it's there's no order to it mm. um and that's something also difficult to reconcile in your mind well yeah. if something's chaos how how do we even begin to approach it <laughs> yeah. and there's the question yeah. that needs to be answered like I'm not but, saying i have the answer yeah exactly we're just asking questions here <laughs> yeah. really um but that that point sort of reaches back to because i listened to that interview that you did with stella dazzi and um, how she made a point of saying that, you know, they had successes as, as a movement in terms of the positions of women's offices and equality and diversity's offices being put up in, you know, different political parties and different council organizations, et cetera, et cetera, that made it necessary for women in the community organizing spaces to go into those more rigid organizing, organizational frameworks. And I heard in her voice, like a slight critique of that. Yeah. Because, as you've said, like these pl- these spaces may not and often don't accommodate for the more radical work we might want to be doing, and whether or not the creation of those positions, like she says, sort of drew some of the energy away from the community organizing at the time was a really interesting point, and it just made me think of that as you said she spoke a lot about how it they watched the process of of, of like diversity or race or, or gender or the intersection of those things be neoliberalized they mm. saw the process of it be institutionalized and all of these such she, she um was talking about how suddenly there was funding from local councils for <laughs> you know black women's positions yeah. and black women's um uh centers and yeah so all the of those, bricks and black women's yeah. group set up the the women's center exactly. and then she said about how it it wasn't able to say itself exactly because, because um there wasn't the knowledge or expertise or support mm. given to those community um, organizers um, to to be able to you know run 
um, that place effectively. Yeah. And and yeah, so that that's in a way it's a it's a win and a loss. You see recognition. This is exactly what we're talking about. You begin to see representation and recognition, but none none of the critical work necessarily underpins that. Absolutely. Like, it, it it was a way to kind of um, flatten. Yeah. Uh, any kind of uh, rad radical or uh, oppositional energy mm. in that uh, organizing yeah. and so yeah it, it was really interesting um listening to her say that because she spoke about the different paths that people took you know mm. people became teachers and mm. educa- uh, educationalists some people went into mainstream party politics some people went into policy mm. like some people became academics yeah and like seeing the sprinkling of all of those yeah. people and watching um she said oh i've come to an end in that way seeing people discuss it's about what you take away um from the experience of organizing together yeah absolutely um just to like bring together some of the well sort of bring it back to black british feminists yeah. um because obviously they've taught us a lot about these organizing spaces and that's why i wanted to ask a bit about what we thought of what a good organizing space would look like off the back of what we know from OAD and Brixton Black Women's Group and all these other Black British feminist organisers. I think now, like, it's, 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 it would be interesting to start the question of as Black British feminist organisers, if we can call ourselves that, I don't know. I still don't know if I can claim the, claim the word organiser, to be honest. Before, before yeah, it's not, it's doing, not. Doing some work, as long as you're doing some work, useful, yeah. meaningful work. Small, small, we're trying. <laughs> um yeah like questions of fatigue so the you know the question of self-care comes up a lot and specifically in Stella Dadzi's interview she said you know self-care wasn't an active like in a question uh, answer she was like it wasn't an active thing they were thinking about but care work was part of it so they were you know asking men a lot of the time to take up some care work roles and like look after children um checking in on each other was just the thing that people did at the time so that it didn't necessarily have this language um but now we have very much a lot of language to discuss self-care and whether or not that that may in fact sometimes be very i guess antithetical to Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do because in and of itself, it's, uh, you know, we hear the Audrey Lord quote of like self-care as a political. <laughs> all of its lifeblood. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Like it's a very useful quote and it, it, you know, it will incite some, some meaningful thought to people, but at its heart, Audrey Lord was going through cancer. Yeah, like she was she, dying. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very practical thing of actually my body will not allow me to do this work and also will not allow me to share my thoughts and my work very soon so it's a very urgent matter of literally caring for myself and i think people i urge people to like reread her essays and and works from around that time because it's really revealing um but obviously olive morris um passed away quite young so i'm not sure how she died of cancer yeah she died of cancer in her 20s yeah late 20s 27 yeah so late 20s yeah, um, and I think obviously we don't know her experience of, of you know, fatigue and, and burnout and stuff like that, but but I see so much of the time amongst specifically black feminist organisers um, and people doing this sort of work, that fatigue sort of become the reason people leave movements and the reason people say, okay, I've served my time, I'm off, and I'm never going to, like, they're just never going to touch this work again. You know what I mean? And it's it's 
it's sad to see, especially like what you said around um, making sustainable movement and making sure there's like people to come up in a place in within your place, but also that the people who leave that movement are doing, I guess, carrying carrying along the 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 ethos of that movement in the different forms of work that they then pursue um, is really important. And it, I think it all comes back to this question of fatigue, which comes up over and over and over again and really just drains my mind because I, I'm like, what is like, what I'm not, I'm not fatigued, but I'm tired. Do you mm. know what I mean? And I'm very afraid of getting to that point where mm. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm done with politics now. I think, yeah, not that I have an answer, but like, <laughs> <laughs> just like reflecting on what, on what you said, I think it's necessary to protect yourself fiercely. Like mm. I say that all the time um, to all of my organizers, um, to all of my org activist friends and um, the people I organize with, protect yourself and your well-being fiercely. And that doesn't have to be a, a selfish thing. That means being in tune um, with your body and understanding your own limits and your own capacity. And hopefully you're in an organizing space where you can communicate um, those things and communicate that capacity to other people. I, I want to touch specifically on what you said about Audre Lorde because she wrote um, in her uh, autobiography, um, she wrote specifically about how um, exposure, so, so she worked in a, um, in a plant where they mm. um, kind of handled radioactive material yeah, yeah. and um, they, they told, you know, the mainly, I mean, the uh, like black low paid women who were handling that radioactive material, like if you don't put your protect protective like shutters down and you like um, handle uh, specific amounts of material each day, you'll you'll be paid more. Mm. And so, so many of them, you know, at the time were just kind of like, we're, we're not gonna take any precautions. Mm. We're gonna do this work as fast and as possible. Um, and, you know, at the time were paid more, but so mm. many of them later on mm. died because of that exposure to radiation. Mm. And so, when we're talking about self-care, it has to it has to come back and be linked to the ways in which low-paid work and labor drain our bodies, drain, drain our time, drain our energy. Yeah. And it and it's most likely people who are on who are who are involved in um low-paid work or doing manual labor or labor that exposes them to um harm yeah. that are also doing organizing work. Yeah. And that like overlap needs to be thought about. Yeah. So sure. So it's like if if we're exposed to harm in our everyday working lives and we're also expo like exposed to a specific kind of harm in the um, organizing space, what are we doing as a community to make sure that, you know, we're talking about mental health. Yeah. We're providing outlets um, for people to express their artistic and creative experiences of organizing mm. as well as the political. Yeah. Um, I think that... Um, yeah, I think uh, the question of fatigue is, like you, uh, like you, a question I um, think about a lot. But it's also so linked to disillusionment. Mm. So, like, so it, yeah, you get fatigued, you get tired, and that makes you question the very basis of what you're doing. And yeah. I too don't ever want to get to that point. Yeah. And I think it comes with treating yourself with a care that does that that you weren't supposed to. Yeah. And that's the essence, I think, of, of <laughs> that you were never supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, of yeah. of th this idea of self care. It's like what I take from that is that what you Lord is saying: the state will kill you. Like, Absolutely. The, the, there are so many things about this world and work and the way that it operates. 
that ensure that you weren't meant to survive in so many different contexts. So you have to prioritize yourself as somebody who is worth caring for. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, as much as it's been taken and distorted and commodified and mm-hmm. turned into a neoliberal idea, I, I, there must be a way to rediscover exactly, you know, what that means in your mm. everyday life. Yeah, um, for sure. Absolutely. Thank you for summarizing that so succinctly and so well. Um, yeah, so be- I think we should ask one more question and then sort of round up. Um, but on that, just leading off endurance, I guess, and leading off self-preservation, talking then about the importance of archiving. So how these communities and this work, especially in a British context, can be remembered and how much we have to do alongside our work to make sure that there is a memory of these moments because you know we live in a time uh, technologically where there's a there's a lot of opportunity to record and there's so many platforms for memory we have the internet we have twitter timelines it must be easy um but so often pieces of work and events and different successes of different movements are forgotten and or and or um made to be historically the successes of an institution Mm. so thinking like of precarious work as you mentioned like there are lots of movements quite going on right now like in the student movement around justice for cleaners and justice for security staff and different people on outsourced workers etc and i'm very afraid that in future that will be a success of the institution Mm. so the institution will be able to say in this year we brought this in and it's already being framed like that in certain universities that i won't name um but (laughs) it's just very interesting um and yeah, I think all of our work and all of the successes of our movements, as well as the people, as well as their histories, needs to be remembered because I know for a fact that there is more work that has been done by both Olive Morris and Stella Dadzi and Beverly Bright that we don't know yeah. of, which is Absolutely. sad. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I think the archiving question is one that makes me so excited because like, we wouldn't be here if it, if it weren't for our access to these histories, Absolutely. whether they be through books or poetry or film or documentaries mm. or art, like... I think when you're doing the work or even that thing of not seeing yourself as doing anything important, like Mm. even if you, you know, are in a very institutionalized like position, like say the NUS women's officer, Mm. if you're doing, and and being part of the women's campaign, like if you're doing the subversive work of making sure that you document everything, write your thoughts down and date it. Journal. Yeah, journal, make a Google drive, take pictures of everything, every meeting, every event yeah. every kind of thought that was you know about the conflict between coming from a grassroots background and then entering a more institutionalized position all of those things are valuable Absolutely. and all of those things are what will i think guide the people that come after you mm. um i have a friend um uh, who like it gets so excited about um, archiving because she's a historian <laughs> and like i think her excitement has really taught me the importance of like you we won't know you know what works in the future if we can't look back at the past and say oh okay you know they tried this or this was a principle that was established in this way in this time in this era how can we learn from that and even even the conversations of things we haven't touched on for example political blackness around uh, around that time um with oad yeah there are things that can be learned tensions that are now being drawn out yeah. more not tensions that didn't exist at the time of organizing yeah, because they did exactly they definitely definitely did but they're now being drawn out because we have access to that history mm. and people are choosing to organize in different ways because of they have history. knowledge of that history exactly um yeah so 
I fully agree. And I think that's a great place to sort of like bring us to a close of some sort of this very first pilot episode of WOMCAM. We hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's it's been very fun. I've enjoyed I, myself. I'm going to very much listen back to what you just said about <laughs> archiving and working in an institutional space and listen to it probably every other week because I'll need it. Um, but yeah, so thank you very much for listening. Um, we're going to hopefully put these out every other month. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And uh, it will hopefully be a space that will grow and continue to bring people into our movement. So we're going to wrap up. But before we do, um, Lola. Okay, I'm going to say a quick shout out um, to Goldsmiths yeah. Students Union who are hosting us, who are doing an amazing, amazing giving us an amazing gift in letting us use wired radio their radio space um jt is in fact with us now yeah. and has been an absolute trooper getting he's us waving. up and running he's waving and also big thanks to um the staff team at nus who have helped ensure that this has happened um you know who you are we love you so much and who else do i have to thank I feel like I'm giving a ourselves a, a award speech. Oh yeah, big up ourselves. Big up, you, know what? Ourselves. you know it's fully ten twenty a.m. <laughs> just so everyone knows, and we're here. Exactly. I got up at six thirty this morning, but we're here, and we've done it exactly. And just I want to say a shout out to Sarah for organising all of those um, panels and oh. for doing tireless work, which you don't get enough recognition for. Wow. Um, Thank you so much. And you're very welcome. Okay. Cool. So last things i guess to mention are WOMCAM resources it's the end of black history month but obviously please sustain the work throughout the year um we will have held black women in academia panels um at three different students unions across the country um uh, sheffield leeds and london and hosted an array of black women academics who i'm really excited to see including gail lewis mm. who was also part of oed and who is an absolute Brilliant. icon i'm just so excited to speak to her use the self and collective care for black women workshop yes. that i made last year um for your black women on campus whether or not they're organizers um and make sure you if you are sort of doing this work you're including women of multiple different identities so disabled women and lgbt plus women and uh black women and women of color and women of multiple identities and axes <laughs> i clearly have no words left to say so that's a clear sign to end um reach out to us on twitter we're at nus Wimcam. um what's your twitter lola my twitter handle is at lola olifemi underscore cool that's one of many twitter <laughs> accounts that lola has <laughs> that's the one you have access to guys yes. <laughs> um and then i'm at sarah fovia so sarah f-o-v-e-a um also email us get in touch at nus connect which is where you'll find all of womcam's resources and if you ever want to run an event or invite us down hit me up um my emails and my twitter bio same cool okay sweet i don't have a wrap up but bye bye <laughs> i'm so glad i got to do that i feel so professional